feet. Thank you, Sister Lucinda. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Thank you, dear. Amen, amen. Amen. I invite you to turn your attention with me to the Word of God today as we continue our series entitled Second Mile Christians, those who go beyond and above the call of duty, those who go out of their way to make, a, make another person's life blessed. Second Mile Christians are those who do to others and for others before they do for themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers, servants, to whom you believed in the Lord, as the Lord gave, each, gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workmen. We are, we are co-laborers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We are co-laborers, not competitors. Father, we thank you and we bless you for who you are today. Lord, you have again warmed our hearts with your presence. And again, oh God, we have sensed our unworthiness, but have been able to celebrate our acceptance in the beloved. Father, you are well pleased. Because when you look at us, you see us through the shed blood of your son. He paid for every sin that we will ever commit. And he has made it possible for us to be in your very presence. Oh God, would you manifest your presence today? Would you illuminate a burning bush in our spirit today? May you speak through that quiet and gentle voice to us today. And may we hear you say, return. May we hear you say, who will go for us? And who shall I send? And, and may our response be, here am I. Send me. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Although I played high school football for two years and college football for a semester until I quit, I did. I figured they're going to find out I didn't belong in college because when you play football in college, they do not give you a chance to study. And I needed all the time I could get. And I played three years of high school baseball and played semi-pro ball, believe that or not. <clears throat> got, to, got to whip out the resume. After that display on yesterday, I have to talk about what my, my legend. And of course, you know, I'm a legend in my own mind. With all of the years I played for the same coaches, it never made any sense to me that every single year I had to try out for the team again. While tryouts for each sport was different, the goal for the coaches that were trying you out was the same. They wanted the best players. They wanted players that could help them win and beat the opposition. In order to make the team, you had to beat out other players that were trying to take your spot. That meant that you had to prove that you were better than them. You had to do whatever it took to impress the coaches. So if you did five win sprints, I was doing six. 
if you sat down after a drill, I was standing up. Even though I was about to pass out, I wanted to impress the coach. I looked for every advantage so that I could make the team. See, I wanted the uniform. <laughs> now, I did play. I actually uh, started in baseball and uh, played uh, defensive halfback and that kind of thing. So sometimes I started with football. And other times I did not, but I wanted, more than anything, what was impressive to me on the football team was the uniform. I just like being in, in the, you know, on the, on, the, on, the, on the field and the crowd and all the concession stands. It was just something very special. I wanted to make the team. And so if my competition was either up to bad or scored a touchdown or made a tackle, I would applaud. Sierra, good to see you, dear. I would applaud. I would be the greatest cheerleader, hoping that they didn't do too good. But I didn't want the coach to think I wasn't a team player, so I, I was player hating. Please don't pick him, coach. Please don't pick him. Good job, good job. Once the tryouts were over, a week later, the coach would list in the gym those who made the cut, and also when the first practice was scheduled. He also would decide on that list, or during the first practice, who the starters were going to be. Now, who started was determined by the coach, and who made the team was the coach's decision. And there were only two things that mattered when it came to who made the team, was who pleased the coach, and if we could win, we could win as a team. Now, even though we pushed each other, once the starting lineup was established and you were on the team, we were now one. Somebody say amen. amen. There was no place for jealousy. There was no place for backstabbing. There was no place for clicks on the team because if you rooted against your teammates, they were not going to be able to produce their best. You had to understand if you're going to be a successful team, and one of the things that made the Eagles so special and the Washington Redskins, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Giants, and Sheila, and all of those other teams, so ordinary is that they recognized the Eagles players that they were co-laborers, not competitors. They worked as one unit. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, he says, in verse 9, he says, For we are co-laborers in God's service. You're God's field, you're God's building. You're co-laborers, we're not competitors. And what he shares with us in verses 5 through 9 is four things that if we are going to be effective in accomplishing the will of God individually and corporately as a church, there are things that we must, we must embrace. There are things that we must apply to our lives that are not natural to the way we act and think because even though we're saved, Often we still act like we're trying out for the football team or the baseball team that the person that is in our church is, our, is the opponent rather than a teammate. Here are four words that I want you to remember. First, the first word that I want you to remember, say servant. Sure. Second word is succeed. Say succeed. See. Third word in verse 8 is going to be seek. Say seek. See. And finally in verse 9, share. Share. Servant, succeed, seek, and share. The first thing that the apostle says, if you, are, you and I are going to work together and not be looking over our shoulder, we're in the same foxhole. We're looking out for the same enemy. And I'm tired, you're tired. If I go to sleep and you go to sleep at the same time, we're very vulnerable to be, to, to be taken out. So somebody needs to know that they can go to sleep while you got their back. 
And so the first thing the Apostle Paul says is that we need to remember that we are servants. We need to remember that we are servants. You hear that word serve, serve. We are servants. We are servants. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers, servants, those who you have believed, whom you have, those whom you believe, believe, and the Lord gave to each one, and the Lord gave to each one. Before unpacking what Paul says that we are, who, are, who am I and who is Apollos, before we unpack what Paul is implying there, I want to share why it matters that we see ourselves as being on the same team, that we're one. We're not to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that's going to be glory, but to dwell below with the saints we know. That's another story. Here's why it matters. Competing with fellow Christians is a problem because competing against other Christians reveal something that is recorded in Verses 1 through 3. Listen to verses 1, one through, uh, starting verse 3, it says, For you are still carnal. Say carnal. For where there are envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one of you say, I am of Paul, and, I, and the other say, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Competing against other Christians reveals that you're carnal, that you are carnal. The word carnal in the Greek is sarkanos. It means fleshly, worldly, in the way that you think and the way that you act. Now, what's interesting about this, in verse 1, Paul says, I, brothers, brethren, I could not speak unto you as spiritual. So he is talking to Christians. So a carnal Christian, is a carnal person is a Christian, a person who has accepted Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, but even though they have been saved for at least three years, I say three years because Paul wrote the letter to the church at Corinth three years after he planted it. He was there for 18 months. He left. He wrote back to the church, and he says, by now, you ought to be out of pampers. You should be past Gerbers. You should be past teething. You should be out of your playpen. But he said, I had to treat you as those who can only digest milk, Similac, versus those who should be. And so one of the first things that happens when you have a spirit, a competitive spirit against other Christians in the church, that doesn't mean we don't motivate, that we don't push. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, that we ought to hold one another accountable. You who are strong bear the infirmities of the weak. We ought to be coming at each other in that way, but not because we are trying to squeeze somebody out of the spotlight so we can be in the spotlight, like Paul talked about. He said, I'm in chains, I'm in prison, in Rome, and many are preaching the gospel to keep me bound. They are flourishing because of my pain. But he says, all that matters to me is that the gospel is not bound. <laughs> How about that? You in prison and other Christians are using the fact that you are not on the circuit to put them, their names on the billboard. Paul says, all that matters to me is that Christ is preached. And so he says, one of the evidences that you're not a spiritually mature person in Christ, irrespective of how many Bible verses you know, how many degrees you may have, how long you've been in the church, how many ministries you are involved in, he says, here's some characteristics of a carnal Christian. First of all, he says, you're covetous. He says, you're jealous. And by covetous, the idea is that you are craving what God has given to another person that he chose not to give you. There's a reason he didn't give it to you, because if you got it, then you would not have handled it. And so the one is, and this is not an exhaustive list, so a carnal person is covetous. They lust after what God has given to you, but chose not to give to them. They're also contentious. He said there's strife among you. There's a fight waiting to happen. A carnal Christian is a fight. They're, they're caught up in their feelings, their emotions, easily offended, hold grudges, won't, won't forgive anybody, but expect everybody to forgive them. One of the evidences of carnality is a person who's con, who lives by their feelings rather than with their feelings. He said, you're contentious. Now, let me add this. This is not a sexually biased character, characterization because there are some very emotional men 
But the lack of being controlled by the Spirit of God is evidenced by, by being overly sensitive. First thing you think is the wrong. They've got to, they got to have something against me. They must not like me. So Paul says, contentious, covetous, and he says, divided, cliquish. That's my girl. That's my guy. I'm standing with him. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. And if you, ain't, if you ain't down with Paul, I ain't down with you. If you're not down with Apollos, I ain't down with you. If you're not a part of my group, I'm not a part of your group. And one of the things that's most heartbreaking to God with Paul ultimately say, did I die for you? First of all, did I even lose a night's sleep over praying for you? And so here we are being divided over men and, 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 and incorporating ourselves in, in groups and cliques and schisms in the church when Jesus says, I died that you might be one. And so one of the, one of the reasons why it's wrong to be in competition to, with other believers is that it's a characteristic of a, of a person who's saved, but you're carnal. You're living a spiritually defeated life. You lack spiritual power. You don't scare nobody but yourself. The devil ain't worried about you. You might as well go sit in the corner and twiddle your thumbs because you have no authority because carnality keeps the focus on you rather than on him. Here's another reason why uh, being a, co, uh, a competitor with other believers rather than a co-laborer is a, is a problem. Competing against other Christians reveal you don't really know who you are in Christ. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but, but, but servants whom you believe? I keep going back to that. And the Lord gave to each one. When you don't know who you are in Christ, you will always be trying to become something God never intended you to be. And there's so many Christians who are still trying to grow up. When I grow up, I, and so we constantly are, that's why people latch on to false, uh, to cults and, 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 and cliques, because we're trying to find our identity through others. You will continue to let others define who you are. And if they don't validate, if they don't pat you on the back, if they don't acknowledge you, if they don't call you and allow, would you come and be a part of this? Would you go with us? We want, if, if they don't invite you, include you, then you lost. You don't know who you are. You're feeling, I must not be very significant. I must not be very important because she didn't, he didn't involve me. But when you know who you are in Jesus, Paul says, who am I? He understood, and we're going to get to that. He said, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. While I said that this is not gender-based, one of the differences between men and women is that we get, men get our greatest sense of purpose and reward from what we do, not outside of relationships, what we do in the workforce, what we are able to accomplish, what we are able to build. And so our wives have to keep pulling us, reining us back into relationship. Women are relational. And so when you feel excluded, when somebody ain't listening to you, when you feel that they're dissing you, then that goes against your self-esteem, and you feel, you really feel left out and hurt. And we're saying, what's the big deal? <laughs> what's up? You have to know, you need to know who you are. Competing against other Christians prevents you from becoming all that you can be in Christ. You will never become everything that you can be in Christ if you are fighting to be equal to or above another Christian to gain acceptance and prominence. He said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as the carnal bears base. Here you are. You should be maturing the Lord. You should be teaching others instead. Somebody got to be changing your diaper. Somebody got to be holding you up. Somebody got to be calming you down. Somebody has to be reeling you in. He said, you ought to be by now spiritual, but when you are competing against other believers, fighting against your own family, fighting against your own husbands, destroying your own marriage. The devil don't have to do nothing but blow the flames. You're the torch. You setting your own stuff on fire and then talking about, why is my marriage bad? Why they don't like me at my job? And why my kids don't act like they got good sense? Because their parents don't have 
sense enough to act like, I ain't going to say you don't have good sense. You will never become all that you can be until you recognize that we're in this thing together. The word fellowship, koinonia, means to share something in common. It, 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 it means to have something, to, be, to have God's DNA. We have God's, God living in us, the Spirit of God. You are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. The word fellowship means fellas in the same ship. <laughs> we're on the same ship. And here you are putting holes in the ship talking about, if I can't row, if I can't be the navigator, if I can't put the map out, I ain't going to do nothing. I'm going to kick a hole in it. We're going to sink. Guess what? If we sink, all of us. Competing against other Christians elevates man rather than Jesus. I, I am of Apollos, and I am of Oh, my, my bishop is, my pastor said, the mother of the church. We don't say my mother of the church said. We put men and people in our lives above the word of God. I, I hear what mama said. I hear what the bishop said and the apostle said. The only ones I know that are in the Bible. Anyway, the one that you say is an apostle. How does what they say line up with what God has already said in his word? We make men and women the center of our joy. If you ain't smiling when I walk in the room, I can't be happy. I want you to know I love Sister Benson to death, but she ain't the center of my joy. She ain't the source of my strength. And here's the way I'm going to operate. I don't know about you, but ask for me in my house. I can't answer for my children. But ask for me in my house. I am going to serve the Lord. We cannot elevate people above God. When people think that you put them on the pedestal where only God belongs, you're going to find yourself constantly being manipulated and drawn away from the purposes of God. Now, who are you in Christ? I'm glad you asked. Let me add, in order to understand who you are in Christ, what you do doesn't define who you are. Paul said, who am I? Well, Paul was a missionary, a prolific writer. He was an apostle. He saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In order to be an apostle, biblically speaking, you had to see the resurrected Christ. So all these jokers going around talking about their apostles, I want to know, did you see the resurrected Jesus? When's the last time he stopped you on the Damascus Road? In all the church, in the history of the church, for hundreds of years, you never hear about no bishop, this, and where did all that come from? Where is it in the word of God? As something that was actually practiced in the church, understanding the meaning behind the word. And we didn't even want to go there, but let's stay with me. Amen. He was a church planner. He played the church of Galatia, the church of Corinth, the church of Ephesus. He planted the church in Crete, the church in Rome. He planted the church in, in, in Philippi. Oh, he, was a he was the most prolific writer and church planner in all of church history. He was a Pharisee. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a theologian. He was an expert. He had a doctorate degree. He was a teacher par excellence. And he says, who am I? See, he understood that what you do don't make you who you are. Because one of these days, you ain't going to be able to do what you're currently doing. But whoever you are will still be who you is. What you own does not define who you are. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There were times when I didn't have a car. Thank you, Jesus. No money in the bank. And I was just thinking about uh, being able to send my wife to Georgia. She was going to get in the car and go those 14, I said, 14 hours in the car. No, no, we, we, ain't, we don't have to do that anymore. No, 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 we will fly. But there was a time. <laughs> we would have only not only been in a car, <laughs> we, we would have been on a bus <laughs> or a horse or a bike. Going to Georgia. She'd still be riding. <laughs> I'm almost there. Funeral was done. Funeral was two days ago, but I'm almost there. <laughs> oh, 
Unfortunately, people will judge you based on what you have, the kind of car you drive, where you live, what you wear, the designer uh, that's written inside your clothes. But I hear Jesus saying, foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But the Son of God, the Son of Man, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Jesus was not materially wealthy. He did not, he was, even though he owned everything, the earth is the Lord's. Without him, nothing that was made was made. And yet, he claimed none of it. He became poor that you and I might become rich in him. So you are not what you wear. You are not where you live. You are not the designer name written on the back of your shirt. How people value or value you or devalue you. Jesus came into the world, and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but they received him not. If people devalue you, that doesn't mean that you have no value. Rejection does not make you a reject. They just, I mean, somebody's trash is another person's treasure. They just didn't recognize. Somebody say amen. Who you are is determined by the, your designer. Paul was looking at a teleprompter called the Word of God, and the Word of God reminded him that we were created to serve, serve God through our obedience, serve God through our worship. And so when, when you boil everything down, who am I? I'm not bishop. I'm not pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon, but I'm a servant. Watch this, the Greek word diakonos. We get our English word deacon, which means servant or one who works from, his, from the hand, his hands in the dirt. In the New Testament, the servant is different from a slave. A servant submiss, submitted voluntarily to his master. A slave was obligated. And so Paul says, we are servants. We are voluntarily placing ourselves under the mastery, the lordship, the authority of Jesus Christ for him to control us. That's who I am. I'm at his disposal. Coffee, tea, and milk, Jesus. Whatever you say, I will say. Where you say go, I will go. Not all servants were slaves, but all slaves were servants. You were created to serve God and to serve one another. I know that doesn't sound very impressive, but when you stand before the presence of God and he evaluates your work for every man's works shall be tried according to what sort it is, wood, stable, wood, stubble, or hay, or precious stone, silver, or gold, it's going to be tried. There's going to be a great bonfire in heaven. A lot of folks were impressed with what you're, you're preaching and singing, but God said it's going to go under the fire. It's going to be tested. It's going to be revealed. The real reason you did what you did, and he said it's going Go up in flame. Because if I didn't do it to please the Lord, if He didn't prompt it, I did it for the wrong reason. If you do the right thing for the wrong reason, guess what? It's wrong. And it's going to go up in flames. Now, watch this. God gave Adam the responsibility of naming all of the animals, He named every one of them. But God never told Adam to determine what the animals were. God determined male and female. He determined what animal they were and what they weren't. Adam simply identified with the name what God had already determined. You are who God says you are. The, the title, the name, the, all of that is insulary or, 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 or for function. What determines male, female, gender, appointment, assignment, who you are in your essence is God who created you. God never gave man that responsibility to determine who you are in your essence, who you are inherently. So when you get a man, that don't make you somebody. When you move into your new house, that don't make you somebody. Because all those things can be taken because they're temporal. They're passing away. But who I am is the one who created me even before the foundations of the earth. He determined to make me male and female in his own image. That's who I am. 
I don't become who I want to be because of my most authentic self. So if I want to be white, and that's my most authentic self. Uh, you know, the, and again, white is just a color skin. We're all a part of the same race, the human race. But I can't decide I'm going to be a woman because that's my most authentic self. Because my most authentic self is not determined by me, but by the one who designed me, the architect, the blueprint maker, the one who started this thing off, God. I am who I am because of who God made me to be. He has absolutely, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I think Brother Tim believed that. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he don't have no self-image problem. <laughs> Praise the Lord. He even brought his Tupperware yesterday at the Boys and Girls Club. He had his plastic uh, uh, survival kit with him. <laughs> he ain't care what he said, Pastor, I just want you to know beforehand, I'm already going home with something. I <laughs> What are the marks of a good servant? The first thing that should be true of you as a Christian is that you should be humble. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Pride comes before the fall. The reason why Satan was kicked out of heaven was because of the sin of pride. The first thing listed on the seven sins that God hates the most is pride. I want you to understand the smallest package that ever could be wrapped is you, wrapped up in yourself. You don't get to make it into the praise and worship team because you can say, me, 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 That doesn't make you acceptable. God resists the proud. Servants realize that the, it is a privilege to serve. She said, you didn't choose me. I chose you to bear fruit and to bear fruit that remains. When I think about it, I get to preach the word. I get to teach the word. I get to be a part of what God is doing. What in the world would God want to use someone like me? You just don't understand where I come from. You just don't understand what I've been through. You just don't understand how rebellious I've been. You don't understand even now the strugglings and the failures. But God, in his providence, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, has chosen to allow us to serve him. What a mighty God. What a mighty, somebody ought to praise him right now that he would use us to be a part of what he's doing. God doesn't need me. I'm sorry to tell you he don't need you either. There are many other things that servants are, but we'll stop right there. It's a privilege. Well, I'll go to church today and put it in for God. Are you serious? Church is not, we call it church service. It really is, a, it is church serving you. You ain't doing no work right now. You, I praise God you're here. Come again. But more than anything, you need to understand that this is the time where you come to be, it's like going to the gas station, your, your tank is on empty, and then you get it refilled so that you can leave here and then do the service. The work of the ministry starts when you take what you've heard and apply it to your life. Now, I knew it was time for me to leave my church in Niagara Falls when they brought me for a kiss, Christmas gift for a toolbox. <laughs> I'd already been shoveling the snow. <laughs> Might as well not pay anybody, let the pastor do it. And you know me, I'm hands-on. I'm hands-on. Then they brought me a toolbox. Now, thank God, I still have it. <laughs> I don't even know if I've opened No, I've used it. But as I said, I, I, God did not give me this kind of skill. But in a toolbox, 
There are all kinds of tools, and each tool has a specific purpose. Now, I don't care how expensive the tools are, how refined they are in their craftsmanship, and what they're capable of doing. Until the tools are in the hands of the repair man, until the tool is in the hand of somebody who can use it, the tool is just a tool in the box. It has no real purpose or worth. You and I are tools in God's toolbox. We're servants. We're waiting for his direction. We're waiting for his leadership. But, it, but this tool that has no value on its own, when it's in God's hands, it can lift up a rod and a red sea will be parted. When it's in God's hands, it can speak to a mountain and the mountain of your obstacles will be moved. But you got to let the tools. Don't get it twisted. You ain't nothing but a tool. That's all I am. You ain't nothing but a servant. That's all I am. But praise God that I can be a servant. He doesn't need you. The Lord doesn't need you. You should be volunteering, running to the front of the line when God tells you to do something because it's a privilege. Remember success. Say success. In ministry depends totally on God. Paul said, I planted a seed or the seed. Apollos watered, but God did what? God gave the increase. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who giveth, who makes the thing increase. You know what he's saying here? Here are a few things that I want you to take home. Every Christian has something to do. Some plant, others water. Every Christian is not called to do everything. It's a Martha Martha. You got, you got it going. You're doing everything. You're a jack of all trades, a master of none. God didn't call you to do everything. Anything God gives you to do, whether it's planting or watering, it's significant. If you're greeting somebody at the door with a smile, that's significant. If you're putting your arm around somebody's shoulder, if you're letting somebody, especially if you have a beautiful smile, you, that, that's significant. But even if you don't have any teeth up in your mouth, if you smile and the Spirit of God directs you, it's significant. Oh, hallelujah. People that don't have no teeth love to smile. <laughs> Give me some of that steak. How you going to eat? I'll get it done. I'll get her done. Anything that produces eternal fruit. It's totally dependent on God. If it's going to have any real value, I know you've been telling your husband, badgering him about changing, and you've been praying to the Lord that God would give you a, a, not a new wife, but a wife that will be like Jesus. You've been praying all along, and nothing has happened because you're trying to do the increase. You're trying to bring about eternal results. Only God can do that. Two kinds of ministries, planning ministries, that's the seed, that's beneath the soil, that's stuff that goes on behind the scenes, stuff that goes unnoticed, the stuff that allows you to sit in a chair that's clean, lights that go on that you didn't know that somebody had to pay a bill, planting, and then there's watering, that's more public, that's more outward, that's the preaching and the teaching, that's outward, the singing. But each ministry, if it's going to have any benefit, God has to give the increase. Here's how this thing works. You have a friend that's sick. The doctor just diagnosed him with cancer. I know a doctor named Jesus who can heal of cancer. So what we need to do, we need to bring the sick to Jesus. When you get them to Jesus, when you plant and water, that's your, the process of bringing them to Jesus. And Jesus, when he heals them, that's the increase. Our part is to get them to Jesus. Jesus is the healer, the, the man, the woman who says the words or does the touching. He's just the instrument. The healer is Jesus. When you have the two loaves and five, when you have the two fish and five loaves, you ain't feeding your own family, let alone 5,000. But if you can get them to Jesus... If you can bring what you planted and what you watered to Jesus, he can take two fish and five loaves of bread and multiply through division. He fed 5,000 men. 
Lazarus was dead, but they took him to the tomb. If he could just, if he could just get the dead to Jesus. Remember the story? Peter and the disciples, they had been fishing all night, and they hadn't caught a thing. They were professional fishers. They were skilled. That's what they did. They didn't catch a single fish. Then the next day, after they had come in and they were tired and exhausted, ready to catch a nap or something, Jesus says, let's launch out again. And my man Peter, <laughs> well, Jesus, <laughs> I know you're a carpenter and I, I know you know a few things, but we've been doing this a long time. We fished all night. But at your word, we done planted, we done watered. But at your word, you know, you're you the one who give the increase. And so Jesus said, cast your net down on the side that the fish don't even normally bite. Just do what I say, because I give the increase. When they cast their net where the Lord said, cast it, when they finally put their marriage on the altar where God said, cast it, when you finally put your child on the altar where God said, cast it, when you finally did what God told you to do, the net, they couldn't even pull it up. It burst from the sea because there was such a catch. Because he, he gives the Increase. We're not co, we're co-laborers, not competitors. Remember, to seek a common goal. Say seek a common goal. We, we, we're getting there. The one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose. Verse 8, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Every Christian has the same purpose. Here's our purpose. Let's get this. Here's our marching orders. Here it is. To see the harvest increased, to see people getting saved, to see people being discipled and matured in Christ through the power of God for his glory. That's the mission. Anything that you're doing that doesn't increase the harvest through the power of God for his glory then your living is in vain because everything that I say and everything I do should be done for his glory and his honor. And when that is true, you have a singular purpose. And guess what? You will have the joy of the Lord. He says, singular purpose does not exclude you from an individual reward. He said, every Christian that does what the purpose requires will receive an individual reward. Even when you have folk on the boat trying to kick a hole in the side, when people don't keep their word, and they're un unfaithful. If you do your part, if you are a co-laborer, the Lord says you will receive. If you do not faint, you will reap a harvest of what? Blessing, so be steadfast, unmovable, always what? Abounding. Remember, to seek a common purpose. We don't have to be divided in the church. We can cut a bunch of nonsense out. Does this glorify God, my thoughts, what I'm about to do, what I'm saying, this conversation I'm having? And you just be honest. No, it doesn't. This is divisive. This is contentious. This doesn't, this doesn't cultivate an atmosphere of forgiveness and Christ-likeness. I ain't doing it. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. How many of you have seen The Gladiator, the greatest movie that was ever made? Some of you. Remember Russell Crowe was Maximus? Maximus. The general. His family was murdered by his opposition. He just wanted to die, but he, was ended, up, he ended up being sold into slavery and forced to be a gladiator. They had one, every gladiator had one singular purpose. That was to stay alive. And they had one reward that each one of them could receive, that if they performed well and stayed alive, they could be free. Remember that? Yeah, Maximus. So Maximus, he's in the stadium. They don't know that he's a general of a Roman, uh, 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 in the Roman army. He's fought many battles. He's a, he's a professional trained killer. 
So now they're in the arena and they're a bunch of slaves who have never been really trained to work together. And they've been cut down, dying. And he says, listen to me. Listen to me and you will not die. Do you want to live? And he said, and he told them, they formed the circle and they were back to back. Remember, they were back to back. And he said, move to the right. And they moved to the right. Move to the left. They moved to the left. Move to the right. And there he said, and then before you know, he said, down. Hold. hold. You remember that? But all that. You remember all that. <laughs> what amazed me is what can happen yeah. when a group of people from different places, different mindsets, come into the salvation under the ark of Jesus Christ as adopted sons and daughters now in the same family. When we make up our minds to serve the same purpose, we will be rewarded to the glory of God. Remember finally, remember finally to share Say share. We serve, we serve, we seek, we succeed because he gives the increase, but we also share. For we are co-laborers, say co-laborers, in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Here's the problem with many Christians. You don't have a clue that what you're doing when you're serving it's not a program. It's not a project. It's a ministry. <laughs> now watch this. He says, for you are God's co-laborers. You are employed by God. You are in God's employment. But not only are you employed by God, but God is employed with you. We are, co we are working with God, which means that what you are doing as God's building and sealed is that not only are you the holy temple and filled of God, what you are doing for him is supernatural and holy. You belong to anything that belongs to God. It's sanctified and set apart. It's holy. It's ministry. That's why when you speak, people's lives are changed. When you don't speak, people die. Lives remain in bondage. That's why the devil doesn't want you living right, so your light won't shine. We share in the work of God. It's holy and supernatural, and you are a part of that. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder. All you need to be is saved. Somebody say amen. We share. Paul said, therefore, my dear brother and my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out what God has already worked in. For it is God who, is, who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. God is at work in you and through you to accomplish his purpose. We are co-laborers with God. We're on the same team. We're on a team. You may go to a different church, but if you say we're on the same team, you may say it a little differently from me, but we're on the same team. You may raise your hands and I might cry, but I'm on the same team. And we all on our way to a place called heaven. And when I get there, when the Lord calls my name, I'm going to be waiting for you. Because the Bible says when all of God's children get together, I know you heard it on the song, but it's also in the word of God. What a time. What a time. What a time. Would you stand with me? Last month, there was a very tragic and unimaginable event that occurred in North, North Carolina. Eight people lost their lives. The initial thought by the police when they investigated was that this was a horrible accident, an SUV plunged over 100 feet down a cliff into 
I think of the, the specific ocean. That's California, brother. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> None of the six children in that car were wearing seatbelts. They all died. When the law officers began to investigate, they noticed that there were no skid marks, no indication of braking. When they did research on the computer software in the car, what was indicated is that 70 yards from the cliff, somebody was accelerating at 70 miles an hour. This was not an accident. All the facts aren't in, but it, look, it wasn't. This was intentional. What would possess an adult? All these children were adopted from different families. What would make someone do something so reckless, so destructive, so generationally devastating? Those kids didn't die alone. Generations were in those children. Potential was in those children. Extended families were in those poor children. Our country has been affected by that. So this was not isolated because, but here's what would make a person be so reckless. When it's all about you, you don't care. You don't care how you are wrecking your own family. You are wrecking ball in your own family. You wrecking the money, wrecking your, your marriage, wrecking your children. You, wreck, you can be a wrecking ball in the devil's hands. Oh, no, I never drive anybody over the cliff. You driving somebody over the cliff every time when you go gambling your money away. You driving them over the cliff when you won't come under the authority of your own husband. But here you talking about, I love the Lord and pray. No, you don't. It's about you. When you won't love your wife like Christ loved the church, you're a wrecking ball. You say you saved, but the last time you opened your Bible was the last time you were in church. You're a wrecking ball. Christ in you, the hope of glory, ought to make a difference. We are on the team. I need you. I will never become everything I should be if you're not standing with me. I need you. It's not about you, brother. It's not about you, sister. It's about him. It's about him. Father, we need you today. God, we just can't go on like this. I refuse, oh God, to just allow this to happen in ways that doesn't please you. May that be all of our attitudes. Father, may we not be carnal, but spiritual. In Jesus' name, amen.